you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 2. Go with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in verses 10 through 14. Luke 2, 10 through 14. Let me read for us. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find Him in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He is pleased. Let's pray. Fathers, we worship You these next few minutes, by listening to the proclamation of Your Word, Father, may it do in our hearts what only it can do. Father, may the Word that was made flesh that day be made real to our hearts and our minds this day. Father, for Your glory and for the good of Your people, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It seems to be, even in our culture still at this moment, that this verse is very well known. It's, it's, a, it's a popular verse. You hear this blasted everywhere. I was even watching a good old America's Got Talent Christmas edition this past week, and, and this phrase was quoted by none other than Simon Cowell, if you know who that is. Uh, he, they spoke of peace on earth. Peace on earth. This is a verse that is very well known. It's blasted everywhere. And I thought about why do we like, why is this passage so prominent in this season, even amongst those who care little about the church or the gospel or such things? And I think it has something to do with the word peace. Peace. Everyone wants peace. We like the idea of peace. We want to feel it. We want to experience it. We want others even to experience peace. The angels are saying here in this passage that Jesus has come, that He was born, that the Word has been made flesh to bring peace. The problem, though, is at this moment we go and define this idea of peace brought by Jesus how we want to. How many of us stop at this moment and ask this question, what kind of peace has Jesus come to bring? What kind of peace did Jesus come in the flesh to bring? And what happens is our world, or even the, the AGT example I gave, or America's Got Talent for those who are not familiar, but they 
are defining the idea of peace however feels best. So we want to ask the question this morning, what did Jesus, what did Luke, what did the New Testament understand about peace as it pertains to this passage, the peace that Jesus in the flesh came to bring? What is the peace on earth among those whom He is pleased? What does that mean? What is peace on earth? How do we define that word peace? And I think if we understand it clearly, that it might actually be a little uncomfortable. Not the warm and fuzzy peace that we think about when it comes to Christmas and peace. And the reality is, is particularly when it comes to holidays like Christmas, no one wants to feel uncomfortable, right? We want to feel good, and we're supposed to be jolly and happy and deck the halls, right? Like we're, that's what we're to be doing, and especially at Christmas. So let's talk first about what the author Luke does not mean when he says peace on earth. That Jesus was not born to bring these kinds of peace. First of all, Jesus was not born to bring external peace. Or let me further define that. Peace among people and nations. That is a very common misunderstanding of this passage in this culture, in our day and time, that Jesus came to bring peace among people and nations. Some would argue that He has brought peace on earth in this way. That He has made the earth a more peaceful place to live. Some would argue the exact opposite. Indeed, there is no peace on earth, at least this. And I would fall into the latter camp there. If you think about it, in the past 2,000 years since Jesus came to bring peace, The 20th century was probably the most violent and bloody century since Christ's coming to bring peace. So if He came to bring peace among nations, an external peace, a peace among people, then He failed miserably. Just by uh, uh, pure empirical data. If Jesus came to bring that kind of peace, He failed But this isn't why Jesus was born. He wasn't born to wipe out war. Now true, one day it will be. One day it will be. There will be no more war. But that isn't the peace He came to bring in His incarnation. Indeed, you can look at other passages where Jesus says to expect the nations to rage rage against other nations, even just before His return. Indeed, it seems that the impression we get when we read Jesus' words is that it's actually going to get worse. Jesus was not born to bring external peace. That's not what they're understanding in verse 14 here. Second, Jesus was not born to bring internal peace. That's not the peace He's referring to in verse 14. We say, but Jesus came to bring us spiritual peace. Well, in, in a sense, that's true. But again, that's not what verse 14 is speaking about here. 
Let me quote Timothy Keller. He says that Jesus has come to bring an internal equilibrium, a perfect poise. And that if we have Jesus, Jesus' peace, then nothing will bother us and we'll get along with all people. That's not the peace spoken of here in verse 14. There's another interesting passage you have to couple with this if you're going to understand, again, peace in, in, in its context of Luke and the New Testament, you look at verse, verse like Rusty, Pastor Rusty quoted a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 12, verse 51 through 53. It says this, this is Jesus speaking. Do you think that I have come to, bring, to give peace on earth? Right, uh, right? So here we have in the beginning, peace on earth. Jesus has come to bring peace on earth to whom God is pleased. And then here Jesus says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Whoa, Jesus. Right? I mean, think about, again, our, our culture, and even in, it's permeated into the church that we think, well, this is the kind of peace that Jesus has come. We, we, can, we can define that however we want to. Jesus is saying, you cannot define my coming in such a way as bringing peace in totality everywhere amongst in every way. Jesus did not come to bring this sort of internal peace. He goes on, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. There will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Here's what Jesus is saying. If I come into your life, if the kingdom comes to press upon you, the peace that you experiencing maybe, or the, the facade of peace, is going to be upset. You're not going to have the wonderfully peaceful and trouble-free internal life that you're hoping for. Now listen, you can plan all you want. You can isolate yourself from trouble and stress and such. But if you are mine and I am yours, there will not be this kind of peace. Think about this as it relates to two different groups of people. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, thinking about having peace with those who don't follow Jesus. Like you might have to get used to not getting along with those people anymore, or some of them anymore. Like you're going to have to say things that might make people upset. That doesn't result in peace between you and that person, and that doesn't result in an internal peace. Like to say something that is troublesome to somebody else who doesn't love and follow Jesus, but what you're saying is, is truthful and, and hopefully wise to be said in the moment. Like that's, there's going to be unrest in your soul, there's going to be division there. And Jesus is telling us to expect it. You're going to have to live in a way that might offend those who don't hold the same values that Christ holds. Now again, we don't want to, not, it's not to be unnecessarily offensive. That's not what we're talking about. Or be offensive meaning like you just, you're a jerk. That's not what he's talking about here, but he's saying when we live faithfully and proclaim faithfully his words, that might be offensive and cause division. 
But then on the other side, think of, think of how this relates to even two Christians, two people who supposedly follow Jesus and this idea of peace amongst them. There's people that you should get along with that maybe you don't, and it, it's hard. Some of us experience tension in relationships with other supposed believers. Now, some of us just try to ignore the tension or just to justify saying, well, it's just the other person, it's their fault. There's division amongst us. There's tension amongst us. Listen, if you're genuinely faithful in your relationship with those people and faithful in your proclamation of who Jesus is by your words and by your actions, then know that this tension is to be expected. This division is to be expected. Jesus, verse 14, Jesus did not come to bring that kind of peace and He affirms it so in Luke 12. If you are genuinely faithful, I would encourage you to measure yourself against the Word, to ask other mature believers to assess. Don't just assume that, that you're thinking through this well. But if there is tension, you should ask yourself... Am I internally at war against the Spirit or am I at war with the other person? What I mean by that is some of us have bitterness toward other people simply because their faithfulness is rubbing up against our unfaithfulness and their obedience is rubbing against our disobedience. Their maturity is rubbing against our immaturity. And what's happening is that's what's causing the division. And in that sense, you're not at war with the other person. You're really at war with the Spirit, with God. Again, the reality is, is our faithfulness, and that's what Jesus is speaking about, is when my people live faithfully for me, it's going to rub like sandpaper against anyone's unfaithfulness. Whether they follow Jesus or not. And what happens though is we think that Jesus came to bring peace to those situations. And what happens is when we expect the baby in the manger to bring peace to these kinds of situations, then we're caught off guard or, or we begin to enter despair or anger or depression because we look at life and we go, why is there so much tension around in these relationships? Didn't Jesus come to bring peace to all of these things? Listen, so long as sin is present, peace amongst people will always be temporal and messy. It will be temporary and it will always be messy. This is not the peace that Jesus talks, that is spoken of in verse 14 of Luke. Now, did he come to bring unity and peace amongst God's people? Absolutely. But again, that's not the peace he's referring to here in verse 14. The third thing Jesus did not, the third kind of peace was that he did not come to bring was some sentimental feeling of peace with God. Some sentimental feeling of peace with God. When we think of peace with God, we tend to think of this emotional state of restfulness or peacefulness with God. So it kind of goes like this. When things are good, we feel more at peace with God. When things are bad, when circumstances are bad, we feel less at peace with God. 
Now, I do think the experience of peace is present, and, and is a, but it's more of a result of the Luke 14 passage. But it's not what Jesus most foundationally came to bring. So here's the question again. What is this phrase, and on earth peace, to whom God is pleased? Luke says, peace has come to earth to God's people. Emphatically, here's what Luke is saying. Peace is here for those with whom God is pleased. The kind of peace He came to bring is this. Let me give you some adjectives before we get into it more specifically. This peace He came to bring has got to be something concrete. It's got to be something concrete. It's got to be something objective. It's got to be something not temporal, but permanent. Something that is fixed and unchanging. And it's something that we get here and now. Peace on earth. It's something for now. Not something we wait for. Let's look at two quick passages as we think about what is this peace he's talking about. If you look earlier in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 through 79, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He goes, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord. So, right, he's speaking of John the Baptist coming before Jesus. You and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the what? The forgiveness of sins. Hold on to that phrase. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give us light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And what's he say here? To guide our feet into what? The way of peace. Zechariah is talking about something objective, something specific. He calls it peace, and he calls it forgiveness of sins. He's going to offer... This, this one who is to come, this Most High, this Lord, He is to come, and He's going to offer forgiveness of sins. And upon that forgiveness of sins will show us then how to walk in peace. So there's some sort of connectedness between this objective forgiving of sins, this final, complete, absolute forgiveness of sins, and this peace. They're connected. Next, if you look at verse 14 of the passage that we are looking at, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom He is pleased. Now, it, you might go, oh, wait, that, you're translating that weird. That's different. It's peace on earth and goodwill to mo- among men, right? Well, if you want to have a conversation about that, we can talk about that later. I think that's the KJV's rendering of that passage. 
and it's wrong. Uh, they mix up the, the uh, grammar of the phrasing there. Instead, anyways, if you want to talk about that later, we can. Virtually every other translation translates it to, at least every other good translation, translates it to some effect this way. This happens to be the ESV. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He has pleased. Here's why this is important. Luke is saying there was no peace with men, between man and God, woman and God. There was no peace that He was not pleased. Specifically, He's not pleased because uh, there's a lack of holiness. We'll get there in a minute. But now, there is peace. Somehow, there is now peace between God and His people. That He is now, think of it this way, that He was not pleased, that there was ill will between all man and God, and now, somehow, that ill will, that lack of peace, is gone. That now somehow God is pleased with men and women. Something has changed. A status changed. A complete status has changed. So what Luke, Zechariah, the angels are getting at here is this. The peace we're talking about is not peace between us or peace within us or peace between nations or a sentimental, emotional peace. Instead, it's a peace between God and His people. That there is now peace. That the war is now over. Finished. Done. Nothing left. You know the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? There's a phrase in there. It says, peace on earth and mercy mild. What's the next line? God and sinners reconciled. The peace that Jesus brought is peace with God. The peace that Jesus brought is peace with God. To quote Pastor Keller again, it's a peace that is absolute, objective, perfect. Something that you have to receive, indeed have to receive, this side of eternity. Let's talk for a second about ideas of temporal peace. Political peace. We, we want political peace. We want between countries, between, so that, you know, the legislation can actually get something done. Like, we want peace. We, now, sure, Christianity can bring peace between warring people. But it's always, this side of eternity, going to be relative and partial peace. Or peace in the heart. 
Sure, absolutely sure. We're not denying. There are other passages that teach that the gospel brings tremendous peace for our hearts, for our internal side. As we think about relationship with other people, it can bring. But even it, again, is always relative and partial. But this thing he brought in Luke verse 14, this peace with God cannot be partial. It cannot be relative. It is full and complete and finished. Colossians, read with me Colossians 1, 21-22. This is going to kind of help set the stage. We're really going to be referring back to this one a good bit as we think about how it relates to this verse in Luke chapter 2. He says in verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's what? Physical body, right? Incarnation. That He's reconciled you by Christ's incarnation through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Here's the deal. Here's the key. In order for man, in order for you, in order for me to be at peace with God, we must be forgiven by God. In order for the war to end, it is an absolute, complete white flag by you and I saying we give in. But not just that, but His forgiveness for our transgressions. Both of those things have to happen. Let's think about, real quick, again, if Zechariah connects this idea of forgiveness and peace at the beginning of Luke, how does Colossians here talk about forgiveness? First of all, it tells us that forgiveness is absolute. That this forgiveness from God is absolute. That it's not subject to degrees, to measures, to different measures of forgiveness. Here's what he's saying. Look at, the, look at the, carefully this. Look through to death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Let's think about that for a second. Once you are free from accusation, you can't get freer from accusation. Right? Did you track it with me? Once you are blemishless, blemishless, there you go. And I might be making up a word, but hang with me. Once you are free of blemish, blemishes, in his sight, you can't get more blemishless. Listen, once you are holy, hear me, church. Once you are holy, you can't get more holy. Once you are perfect, you can't get more perfect. If you could get more perfect, then you never were perfect in the first place. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
does that sound like a piece that is varying in degrees? It's absolute. It's complete. But forgiveness is absolute. Forgiveness is also objective. Forgiveness is objective. Now, let me, let me define for you the difference between subjective and objective. Subjective refers to like personal perspectives, feelings, or opinions on a situation or a decision. That's where most of us live most of the time. And we don't realize just how subjective our views of everything. We view the legitimacy of everything oftentimes through how we feel about it, what our perspective is. When that might not be reality at all. That may not be the objective truth at all. We're skewing it with our broken hearts and minds. But something that's objective is that regardless of subjective perspectives, uh, basically regardless of your personal perspective or the way you feel about it or your opinion, something that is objective is based purely on facts. It's based purely on the truth. So when we say forgiveness is objective, it's based purely on facts regardless of how you and I feel. I don't know about you, but that's, that's the, a measure of freedom there. More of that in a bit. That forgiveness is not subject to your perspective. That forgiveness is not subject to your feelings. That it's reality and it's not changed by whether or not you're feeling it. Forgiveness is objective. Forgiveness is absolute. And forgiveness is something that He brought to earth. It's something that must be extended to us and can only be extended to us on earth. Something for now. So forgiveness is absolute. It's objective. It's something He brought to earth. Listen, peace is not just a feeling between you and God. It's a reality of the end of war. It's a reality of the end of war. Again, we separate these things at Christmas time. We just want to talk about peace, 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 and the feelings and the, the emotions of peace and what the warmth and the fuzzy of peace and we don't understand right? Peace and war, those two words go together. You either have war or you have peace. It seems like we've relegated peace with God to be some sort of sentimental, emotional experience between us and God. There's no tension between us. Our our relationship is restful. We're good, man. We're good. Me and God, we're good. We're at peace. I think, and I want to dive into this a little bit more in a few minutes, but I think this is the result of a trend we have I've seen, I think it's observable, in elevating God's grace as the prominent jewel in God's crown. Thereby misplacing, displacing 
the rightful jewel as the prominent jewel in his crown. We've, we've, we've elevated God's grace. Now, God's grace is important. We want to trumpet his grace, but we go grace, grace, grace. And what we end up doing is we use grace to make us feel better about our sin, about the war between us and God. And so what happens is life as a Christian becomes primarily about how I feel between God and I. This forgiveness necessary for people is because there is not peace. And if there is not peace, then what is there? War. There's war. War with God. Every human to ever walk this earth has been at war with God. And if you're truly redeemed and a follower of Christ, then there's still a measure of your flesh wanting to be at war with God, not at peace. Indeed, what does, what does Paul say in that Colossians verse? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind, you were at war with God. Enemies have no peace. They can have a truce, but they can have no peace. Even when we think about political peace between countries, like usually there, there's, uh, there's no peace that happens. There's just a truce that takes place. They don't become united. One becomes surrendered and subjected to the other. But we're enemies, and we have no peace. True peace True peace is reconciliation with between people. And that only happens between us and God upon forgiveness. Right? Because we are the offending party, not God. So if we're at war and we need peace, peace can only come through forgiveness. And the only forgiveness that needs to take place is Him to us. And Luke says that a child is born and with him comes peace. <sighs> Why did, just a quick question here, why did Jesus have to become physical? Why? To end the war. The war was physical and spiritual. But He had to come live in our flesh and live at peace with God. Always at peace with God. Listen, the average person in the church pew does not understand this. The average person is trying so hard to be good and hoping to be good enough for God to have favor upon you. But the gospel offers peace on earth, absolute peace, perfect peace, peace with God, reconciliation, without spot, without blemish, and it has to be received right now. Nothing like this in the world is offered anywhere else. Only Christ comes to offer peace with God. Indeed, He was the only one that could offer peace with God. You know, really all of life boils down to these two things. 
getting that peace? How do we get that peace that Luke 2.14 is speaking about? And then two, living out of that peace. All of life boils down to those two things. The first one is this. In order to receive this peace, you must first admit that you are at war with God. You must first admit that you are at war with God. You have to admit that you're... Listen, this is true in, in, in two senses. One, if you're not a follower of Jesus, in totality, you are at war with God. And we're going to talk about why we should see it this way and some passages that help us see it this way. But if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, understand that your flesh is still alive and well. That your flesh still wants to be at war with God. Even though He has given you a new heart. So we have to admit that you're at war with God. And the reason I, I bring out both senses of that, because right in a sense, we, those who are followers of Jesus, that you are saved, but you are in another sense working out your salvation, right? So this is a process, not earning your salvation. That's not what we're talking about, but now we're living in light of our salvation. And we have to understand that our flesh tends towards war as we're living in light of our salvation through Jesus. The reason that many of us don't experience peace with God is because we don't believe we're at war with God. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't really feel, I don't, I don't understand this peace with God, and I don't, I don't understand the reality of this peace with God because we don't understand that we're at war with God. Listen, if you're a follower, you were at war in totality, but now your soul is at peace with God. Romans 8, 7. Let's read this passage. <clears throat> it says this, The mind governed by the flesh is what? Hostile to God. Hang on to that phrase. Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Okay? You and I don't want to hear this. We say, that's not me. We want to think that our most fundamental issue, the most fundamental condition of our heart, is one of ignorance. Therefore, our greatest need is just to know more. I don't know enough about God. And that's my most fundamental need. And so just enlighten me and, and I'll be fine. Or we want to think that our most fundamental condition is one of simply improving. I had a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, I, I, I just always viewed sin as just not breaking the Ten Commandments, and then everything else in my life was just about becoming a better person. It's not what the Bible teaches about sin. Our most fundamental condition is not about simply improving. Therefore, our greatest need is just to get better or to find new strategies to be a better person. The reality is, according to Romans 8 and other passages, that our most, the most fundamental condition of our heart is one of hostility toward God. The most fundamental condition, the most foundational condition of our heart is one of hostility towards God. And if that's the case, 
then our greatest need is not more information. It's not just to be a better person. Our, our greatest need is reconciliation. And in order for that to happen with God, it requires His forgiveness. The most fundamental need is reconciliation with God. And we must have His forgiveness for that. Listen, if you see that factually, objectively, you are at war with God, then you might begin to see a need to receive His peace. Think about Christmas. You ever got a gift that you didn't think you needed? Anybody? I didn't need that. Right. Stop being self-righteous. Y'all, look. In two days, you're going to be sitting there. Someone's going to give you a present. You're going to be like, inside, you're going, oh my goodness. Like, I didn't need that. How can I, what can I do with this until I can get rid of it without them noticing? Right? Yes? Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't the only sinner in here. Now, Now, maybe you opened the gift. You even kept it in your house for a while. But ask ask this question, did you really receive it? Did you really, with gratitude, did it become a part of you? Did it become a part of your joy and your life? Did you receive it into your experience, into your existence, into who you were? No! Right? It's just filling a temporary spot until you can get rid of it. Otherwise, if you had your choice, you'd have said, just keep it, right? Just, just, just keep it. You're good. Why don't you take this for your house so I can see it when I come to your house, right? Listen, I, y- y'all, don't anyone do that, okay? Just shake your head, smile, say thank you. Lie the whole way through it. You didn't receive it. Listen, but if you, so if you see, if you, if you can't see that you're at war with God, then you will never receive peace from God. You won't see a need for it. And that's how we, particularly if you grew up in the church, well, we're just good moral people. We're fine. I love God. You know, at least give Him a head nod every once in a while. And, you know, and I, and I vote the right way and I don't do drugs. And so I'm good. Like I'm at peace with God. But if you see that we're at war with God, then the gift of peace would be ever so precious. You might just take that peace and put it on the mantle in full display for your heart and for everyone else to see. You might just take that peace and set it where you can see it every moment of every day where you can't walk away from it, where you're reminded of the gift that you were given. If you see that you were at war with God and you have His precious peace, you might just put the peace in your pocket so that you can reach in and touch it every chance you get. Many of us don't realize we're at war with God because the God we claim to worship is a creation of our imagination and not the God of the Bible. We have created this God. I think often, if I'm trying to drill this down, particularly to application for us in our church context, we've created this God of grace 
to the neglect of other very important parts of his character. Yes, we need to trumpet the grace of God, but we cannot trumpet the grace of God to the neglect of other parts of his character. We've created a God in our minds that doesn't require holiness. Those for whom he is pleased, with whom he is pleased, how would he be pleased that they would be holy as he is holy? Instead, we've created a God that doesn't require us or expect us to put idolatry to death, that doesn't expect us to lay our lives down for others, or to steward His money well, or to be committed to the body of Christ, or to submit even wisdom decisions to God, or to read our Bibles, or to be in intimate relationship with other believers where we are known and others are known around us. Instead, we've created a God in our minds that is conducive to our evil desires. One that is permissive of our sinful longings. And so, of course, we don't feel like we're at war with God. Why? Because you're not in relationship with God. You're in relationship with your mirror. Because you've created a God that looks awfully a lot like you. Until you see the holiness of God, you will never see that what Jesus came to do and what He has done. Very briefly, we look at passages like Isaiah 6, 1-5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high, listen to these words, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And what's the picture being painted here for us? And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy. Not just one, holy, right? Three holies is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if that wasn't enough for your picture, verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me. What's he say? For I am unholy. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are unholy. They have unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Hodge said this, The holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather, holiness is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is His infinite moral perfection crowning His infinite intelligence and power. That's God's holiness. Thomas Watson said this, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. 
It is the name by which he is known. He is holy. And for us to be at peace with God, we must be holy. Again, grace should not be the most sparkling jewel in the crown of God's. His holiness is. His holiness is more foundational than these other aspects. It is with holiness that He gives grace. It is with holiness that governs His mercy. It is His holiness that governs His justice. And so on and so on. It is His holiness that permeates the entire earth. It is His holiness that is unchanging and perfect. And He says to us, Be holy, for I am holy. Later on, about 47 chapters later in Isaiah, it says this, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our unholiness. Holiness. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us what? Peace. Ha! Brought us peace. What's Luke 2 say? Glory to God in the highest.